Good morning and welcome to Lifestyle Tucson. My guest for this portion of the program is Lisa Webster. She joins us from Casa de los Niños, a crisis nursery here in the Old Pueblo. began back in 1973. We're going to talk about its origins and what it's become now and what we're looking forward to to 2021. Good morning, Lisa. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Take us back to 1973, how things all began. Uh, Well, you are right in your introduction that it did begin as a crisis nursery. Um, the the goal was uh, to provide a a safe place to to take children when they were at risk of abuse or neglect, and over the years, all of those programs have evolved, and we learned that the way to help children is really not to remove them from their families, but to really help the whole family. Um, so we actually, um, just like the rest of the country, moved away from. Uh, shelters and are creating programs that really help families before that abuse occurs. Mm -hmm. But there are instances where you're pretty much the last resource for a child. Um, Or first and most important resource, I would think. I think that is, I think that is a very true statement. Mm -hmm. Yes. We, we try to be the first resource for families and um, we do have such a wide array of, uh, programs now that we can help families uh, in a lot of different situations. And again, to really avoid the situation where a child needs to be removed from the home. Mm-hmm. When when they are removed from the home, um, we focus on foster care now so that the child always can be in a home because that, that's really the best place for a child. They, they don't do well in congregate care or shelter settings. Mm-hmm. Well, you're certainly your um, facility has grown and changed into a pretty substantial and dynamic organization right now, particularly in terms of your buildings and so forth. Uh, we are a very large organization, this is true, and um, a large part of our work is behavioral and mental health services, and I can tell you that particularly in this last year, um, the the mental health of children and young adults has really, that has actually become a real crisis. And um, we have uh, over 50 therapists and and, uh, people that are working really hard to help kids to navigate some of those very challenging mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And there were so many different things that came out of this pandemic. Uh, How did you feel in terms of being prepared for something like that? (laughs) Well, we we weren't prepared. I don't think anybody was prepared, and yeah. um, we're, we're all still looking around, saying, "I can't believe we're now looking at a year." Um, you know, when it when it became clear that we had to make some really, you know, one eighty adjustments to the way we work. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, I will say that even though you know, maybe mentally it was, it was a lot to take on. Um, our organization is strong and, and I was so impressed with the way the, the whole staff just came together and the priority was always to just continue to serve people, to be there for people. And, um, you know, we've, it's been a real, it's been a real stretch to find ways to, um, get technology to families so that they can communicate Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, continue on in the services that they have. Um, and of course, you know, for all of our staff to have that kind of technology as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you're in the middle of it, you think, 
I can't, I can't believe this is happening. Are we doing the right thing? And as I look back at the year, I'm incredibly proud of our organization and of our staff and the way we've come together, because I I have to say, um, I don't think we, I don't think we missed a beat with uh, continuing to serve people. Um, So, um, you know, we, we keep moving on. It, It doesn't look to be changing dramatically anytime soon. So we're going to stay this course and um, hope that uh, hope that things start to get better with the vaccine. Yeah. We're speaking with Lisa Webster from Casa de los Ninos this morning, finding out a little bit about the organization and where it's headed in 2021. One of the things you had to come to terms with in 2020 was uh, dealing with parents as teachers, and you even made a, a program about it. Tell us about that. Oh, well, that's actually a program we've had for some time. Um, really? That's a pro- uh, yeah, that's actually a program that um, – uh, we have we have several in home programs, and the Parents as Teachers program uh, is a is a incredible resource for families with young children that are trying to make sure that they're going to be ready to start school. And uh, so we have a whole team of people that that go into homes. And again, now with the pandemic, we tend to do most of that virtually. We have a lot of a lot of our team that meets on the doorstep of people's homes, mm-hmm. but um, and they they give them tools to become a teacher for their own children and find ways in the home to find teachable moments and make sure that that uh, kids um, are ready to learn when they start preschool or kindergarten, and also um, these these uh, um, people that, uh, the support people that go into the homes are also very good at. Um, highlighting some other problems mm-hmm. that might be going on and connecting them to other resources that we have in our organization or in the community that will help them to avert any sort of issue, to address developmental issues that may be happening, and um, make sure that the family's empowered to move forward in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Describe some of those relationships you have with other organizations. I mean, some, you know, there's the old uh, it takes a village kind of thing, but uh, in your case, it takes kind of a coalition of, of uh, various resources. Uh, that is true. Boy, you're good at this, Mike. You've, uh, you <laughs> well, I've been around for should, a while. This isn't should, my you first cast. You should come on. You should come on board. We have we have openings. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, Tucson is also a, a really um, unique place and a, a really strong community, and um, we all do work very closely together. So we have we have partnerships with, you know, all, so many nonprofits in town. All the names that you would recognize, you know, from places like Child and Family Resources and Emerge Center for Domestic Violence, um, um, uh, El Rio, and then we also, of course, really benefit from relationships with the larger medical centers and um, some of the expertise they can offer and some of the resources they need for their clients and patients that they serve. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's a two way street, but um, you are right that um, we, we, we all, we all benefit when we work more closely together. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interactions you probably have to deal with is with law enforcement. Tell us about that relationship. Well, um, you know, we we um, I I would say that I think law enforcement is is uh, appreciative and grateful to have a resource like us, mm-hmm. and I know that um, I know that I, I think I can I think I can 
be confident when I say I think they know that we can always help to de-escalate situations, to address situations in a positive way. Um, I think frequently, especially when younger people are involved or children yeah. witness um, things with that involve law, um, law enforcement, it can be very scary. And so I think we help to navigate some of those feelings and um, build some some trust and um, you know there's there are times too when um, it can be sort of a, a gray picture I think for law enforcement as to what's actually happening with a kid and so I think our expertise can help to shed some light on you know maybe it's not what did you do wrong but what happened to you mm-hmm. okay all right. Well, it's going to be more and more interesting as, as time goes on here and some of the political developments we've been seeing, particularly with regard to uh, law enforcement and how that's going to change over the future and how it's going to embrace organizations like yourselves in order to do a better job in serving the community. Um, when we start talking about uh, fostering, um, that is uh, something that is of desperate need in Arizona. So many kids are out there and it's, it's this huge volume of kids and it's just getting bigger because of all the hardships and problems imposed by the pandemic. Uh, how is your uh, foster program configured right now in terms of getting people involved and, and moving them forward? Well, um, you are correct that that is always a need. And I think you're right that the need will likely grow uh, in the future. Um, we uh, have a have a large circuit of foster homes that we license and you know, monitor and provide support for. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question that we are always in very much in need of additional foster homes, particularly for older children or for sibling groups. Um, our our team has, just like our other teams, really had to make some dramatic shifts about how we work safely in this current environment, because as you can imagine, it's really important to have actual eyes on children in that situation. And so we've had to work really hard to make sure that, you know, the families have the kind of um, protective gear that they need Mm -hmm. to still engage with the services. Um, And, you know, the, the good part of the story is that sometimes foster foster homes close because they actually move to permanency with a child. They adopt the child, and that's a great story. But in that situation, it still means that we need additional foster homes. So, um, you know, this is actually a great time, I think, for people to look at their own living situation and their lives and ask Mm -hmm. the question, is this a time that maybe I could create a space in my family and in my home to to, uh, foster a child? We're speaking with Lisa Webster from Casa de los Niños. Uh, about some of the services and programs that they've been offering since 1973 now and moving forward, talking more about fostering. What about that process for people? Um, can you uh, give them a good idea of what they're getting, in terms, getting into in terms of how they're going to be dealing with government in, in this process? Well, I will tell you that I am not the expert in the actual uh, process to become a foster family and I know that you know every every situation has different nuances to it. Um, we do have a 
good amount of information on our website at casadelosninos.org. Mm-hmm. And we have people, um, people in our foster program that can answer all of those questions. There is quite a bit of detail, too, about the licensing process yeah. and um, you know, all of those requirements that's available both on our website and online. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're, you're making people, um, you're giving people an, an environment to work through this process, to answer questions, to um, maybe uh, reveal some things that people hadn't been thinking about even in terms of, you know, what, the, what they're uh, uh, maybe facing and fostering a child. So it's a, a great service. And you have the, what's the nurse family program? Uh, Nurse Family Partnership is a wonderful, it's a national program that we are, um, we are part of. And uh, it's an, it's another really valuable in-home program. We have uh, nurses that go directly to new mom's homes and they work with uh, the mother through the pregnancy to ensure that they have a healthy pregnancy um, that they have resources that they need to address any issues that might be going on. But then the interesting part is that they actually stay with that mother in a partnership for the first two years of the child's life wow. to, make sure that the, to make sure that the child is meeting developmental milestones, um, having all of the necessary vaccinations that they need, meeting health milestones, but also ensuring that the mother is supported and has what they need and is able the the nurse really works to support the mother in their in their goals as a parent and um it's it has absolutely wonderful outcomes Casa de los Niños has been a gem in our community for children in crisis for many many years going on 50 years now if you'd like to find out more you can go to casadelosninos.org our guest for this part of the program is Lisa Webster from the CASA. Thank you so much, Lisa, and have a good week. Thanks so much, Mike. Good morning. I'm Mike Rapp, and my guest for this portion of the program is Norma Cable from the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. We're going to talk a little bit about an update with regard to how they're operating in the midst of the pandemic and some of the things we can look forward to in the next year. Uh, good morning, Norma. Thanks for joining us on Lifestyle Tucson. Yes, good morning, Mike. Always nice to talk to you. Well, give us a little rundown on where you're at right now in terms of distributing food. Sure. So we are just now making the transition back to our warehouse on Country Club. Uh, We had been at Keno doing drive-through distribution since May, uh, spent the summer there. But that has really been taxing on our staff and on our resources to pack up all the food and get over to Keno, distribute it all, and then pack it back up and take it back to our warehouse. So as of Thursday, January 7th, we're starting distribution again at our warehouse at Country Club. It continues to be a drive-through distribution because of COVID and because we continue to take those precautions. Um, Eight to noon, Mm -hmm. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So that's what we're doing. It is going to be a a bit of an adjustment for us, but we trust that this is a good decision and we can make it work. Mm -hmm. What led to this? Was it just the... the the cumbersome nature of the, of the effort, or what, what made you make that change? Yes, it really was time to take a look at what it was costing us in terms of resources. And then also, we did get through the busy holiday season, so traditionally those are our highest numbers. We were able to serve out of Kino mm-hmm. um, during those time periods. So this should not be 
Um, this traditionally is not as busy of a season for us. We'll see what happens with COVID and everything, and we're certainly keeping an eye on it. Mm-hmm. But it's just better for us to be at our warehouse. It's where the food is. It is uh, better on our people. It is a, a better use of our resources sure. as we look at how we're getting food out to the community. Mm-hmm. Well, describe that resource, um, that, that facility that, that has developed over the years. So we are talking about the main warehouse of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. And so we are at 3003 South Country Club. And that warehouse actually originally was a furniture warehouse uh, about 40 years ago. We've used it for the last 20 years, so 25 years maybe. Um, And we have just recently made some improvements to it. Among those are improvements in the parking lot. And that's part of what gave us some confidence that we could use that space. Um, and get people in and out fairly quickly. Uh, we are managing the traffic, and we're certainly watching it to see how that goes on Country Club. We know that people do line up really early in the morning, and that's just not necessary. Um, the wait actually tends to be longer if you come earlier in the morning. We, we're trying to encourage people to come a little later. We have not run out of food. We will not run out of food. So, you know, if you can start a line at, at 10 a.m. and or 11 a.m. and get through it a little quicker rather than coming really early and waiting in line in the dark and the cold until we open at 8. We just think that makes better sense. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think about um, 2020 as we move forward here, Um, particularly, I'm sorry, 2021, uh, particularly in light of 2020? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot, and part of uh, what else gives us confidence about working out of Country Club is that we really know the ins and outs of the drive-through distribution. We suffered through that long, hot summer over at Kino. We made it. We're very, you know, proud of that fact. And our volunteers continue to amaze us. They still sign up, come out, help us. And they really have gotten into that groove of knowing what we need to do to serve people, to have them drive through in a safe manner. We also just can't say enough about the National Guard. They have just been such a huge help, and they've been with us for months. So if we look back at 2020, we know we just couldn't make it couldn't have made it without the help of the National Guard, the volunteers, the community, the donations that we've seen really has been another amazing lesson to us in how generous this community is and just what it takes to, to get us through this. So yeah. we are filled with hope for 2021. We really think this is going to be a turnaround year. We know those vaccines are coming and getting out, and that gives us some hope. Uh, we also just have seen great support. We know that people um, do want the community food bank to operate and be there to give out food. And so we will be buoyed really by that in 2021. We're really, really grateful for the support we continue to see. And we've seen that from the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, people stepping forward and realizing that food is such an essential need, actually a human right. And so willing to do whatever it takes to, to get food to people who need it. And that's not just here in Tucson, mm-hmm. but, you know, throughout the five counties that we serve. So, Really grateful for that and really hoping, I think, like most of us, to just see better times in 2021. Yeah. So do you think um, other nonprofits and, you know, big organizations like yours with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, balls in the air are going to come out of uh, 2020 a little bit more muscular, maybe even have some different skill sets? Yes, I do. And that's a really good point. Um, You know, we've had to deal with um, so many different issues. With COVID, not only in terms of keeping the people that we serve safe, but also our staff so that we can continue to operate, our volunteers so that we know that we are protecting them and not causing any more of a problem. 
So we really have had to look at that in new and different ways. I don't think that's a bad thing. And just like what you said, looking at how we're using our resources makes good sense always for us to evaluate that kind of thing. And just looking at, you know, what we can do, which um, is really amazing and, again, is possible only because of the community. So I think the Community Food Bank comes out of this really being able to operate in a safe manner in a pandemic, and that says a lot. We have adjusted our hours. We've now, we are now adjusting our location again and just trying to be really nimble. Uh, our farmer's market pivoted really quickly to be able to serve people in a drive through manner. And if you, if you think about a farmer's market and how generally that's a, an invitation to come and spend some time and stroll around and take a look at a bunch of different things and look mm-hmm. at the produce, they really pivoted quickly and realized that was just not going to happen. And yet, in a time of pandemic, how important that support is to the local growers that we work with. So they pivoted within a couple weeks, figured out how to do drive through figured out how to offer a limited menu. So you don't, you don't quite get the same assortment, but you're still getting mm-hmm. fresh, locally grown food, and figure out how to keep that support going to the local growers. They're just really proud of that kind of thing. And I think for our community, it's really important. We continue to look at that healthy, nutritious produce as vital to the food that we're giving out. It's a big part of what we're doing because we know that that makes such a difference to our community. Mm-hmm. Well, give us a little background on the, on the farmer's market aspect of this. Sure. So the Community Food Bank does run the Santa Cruz River Farmer's Market, and that traditionally has been held at Mercado San Augustine, and that location is the same. But that was a Thursday afternoon farmer's market, generally three hours in the evening, and you could come, you could have dinner, you could shop around, you could buy locally made um, crafts, soaps, cards, flowers, and then, of course, the produce that we make available that's grown by growers right here in our area. And so that sort of thing is operated by the Community Food Bank because it's an important way for us to get that produce out to the community. Also because we do accept um, SNAP benefits, which is also known as food stamps. Mm -hmm. So you can go and spend $20 in that benefit at the farmer's market and receive double the amount for no added cost. It really is a vital way that we're supporting that produce getting to people who need it, who might not be able to afford it otherwise. And it works both ways, right? It works for the people who are buying the produce. It also is essential for the growers who are growing it um, to keep that demand going. And it's just a really good outlet for them to work together and then to offer that, you know, those beautiful tomatoes and melons, (laughs) potatoes that you see that are grown in our area. And available, so that is a is a really big part of what we do. We're big on fresh, locally grown food. That's also the focus of our farm, mm-hmm. uh, where we teach people how to grow fruits and vegetables for free here in the desert. And then, of course, also the focus of the produce that we we rescue from Nogales, coming through Nogales, coming up from Mexico. Again, locally, not maybe not locally grown, but, but healthy yeah. and nutritious and good for you. Maybe a little different from the canned food that you traditionally think of for a food bank, and certainly those non-perishables are really important to us, Uh, but so is the fact that we are able to distribute that produce. And in that case, you know, the produce that we get from Mexico, we're able to serve the people in southern Arizona. We take it to other parts of the state and even to food banks across the country. So we're really proud of that work, and we just really recognize how important that is. We're speaking with Norma Cable from the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona and some of the challenges that... uh, uh, 2020 has left with us and maybe some opportunities looking to uh, 2021 with some new skill sets and some 
um, a different perspective on how to go about uh, dealing with uh, hunger in our community. Let's talk a little bit about um, distribution of food generally outside of the um, purview of the community food bank. Uh, a lot of people in major cities, big cities, suffer from isolation in food islands um, where, you know, you got liquor stores and, you know, convenience stores and a couple of bodegas, but beyond that, that's it. Um, do we have anything like that in, in our community? Um, in terms of food deserts, yeah. we certainly do. Deserts, yeah, I guess, is know, the term. Islands, yeah. We know absolutely that that is true in our community and that that is one of the obstacles that we deal with in terms of it's hard to get healthy food in certain parts of town where Mm -hmm. there are no grocery stores, Mm -hmm. where there is no fresh produce at at the stores that are in that area. So that is another reason why we're really concentrating on getting that fresh, healthy produce out to people who need it. And you're absolutely right. We, You know, it depends on what part of town you live in. A trip to the grocery store is not all that easy and not convenient. And there are real costs to that. We know that many of the people that we serve do suffer from diet-related disease, and that's because that healthy and nutritious food is hard to get and just more expensive, not always available. And so that's one of the reasons, again, why we focus on really getting that produce out to the community. I looked at our line um, just a few hours ago, and we're offering potatoes and apples Mm -hmm. and other kinds of fruits and veggies, fruit juice that – is really an important part of what we're distributing. And, of course, along with that goes our bag of non-perishables containing as healthy staples as we can get it. That would be like tomato goods but low-sodium and canned vegetables that are also low-sodium. And then the brown rice, the whole wheat pasta, things that are a little more healthier because absolutely uh, food deserts are a real problem and something that we do see and something that we know we really need to fight in our work as we continue to to serve our community. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive that a, you know, a bad diet could lead to obesity. Um, you know, plenty of food is one thing, but the the type of food is is critical as you point out. Is this kind of eating behavior and and uh, food perspective cyclical? Does it go down through families? Um, you know, it often and usually is a function of budget and the kind of money that's available when you only have a certain amount set for the month and you need to pay rent and you need to pay utilities and you have other fixed costs. And food becomes this last area where you say, okay, well, I've got this certain amount of money and I'm just going to have to make it work. And that's where you see um, turning to processed foods, which we know are not good for us, but they're cheap mm-hmm. and they fill us up. Um, And that's where we also see maybe just other options out there. We know that fast food in general is not a healthy option, but it's cheap and it's fast and you can get it. Um, And so when you're working with that limited budget, it's often the dollar amount that you're looking at and not the health amount, right? Not the nutrition, not what's good for your body, because you really are just working at this basic level of trying to survive um, on a budget, on earning an income that just isn't enough. Okay. And that's what we see here, certainly. We see working families. We see people who have received NAP benefits, food stamps, and they'll run out by the end of the month because it's not enough. It's yeah. not enough for a family. We see seniors uh, trying to make it on a fixed income and then sometimes dealing with uh, raising grandchildren or great-grandchildren that have come their way that they just didn't yeah. budget for. 
that they're just not prepared for. So all of those factors go into this um, this issue of, you know, I don't have enough money for right. decent nutrition. Yeah, well, the reason I ask eating what I can. Yeah, well, the reason I ask is, you know, you kind of learn about eating from, you know, what you see in your home, and and if you take yeah. that with you in, in later in life, it you know, it kind of continues. All right, uh, Norma Cable has joined us this morning on Lifestyle Tucson from the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. And if people want to find out more, your URL is? Communityfoodbank.org, and you'll find all kinds of information on there. We're always looking for volunteers. We welcome donations, and we really are just grateful for this community. Communityfoodbank.org, there's just a bunch of information on there. Norma, thanks for joining us on Lifestyle Tucson. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it.